Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. I'm very excited to be talking to Amanda Mel, who is an actor in Portland, Oregon, and has a lot of experience with audio narration as well as performing on the stage. First of all, welcome, Amanda. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. I must say that I had a little bit of experience recording a narration on LibriVox. For those of you who don't know what LibriVox is, it's a free platform for those who want to narrate public domain documents before the 1920s, basically, to have experience recording free programs for people to download or listen to online. And I wanted to talk to Amanda about that side of her career. But just to get started, let's take a listen to a clip from a recording by Amanda on LibriVox of Dorothy Canfield Fisher's The Homemaker. But what sickened Lester was the unscrupulous exploitation of the homemaking necessity, the adroit perversion of the homemaking instinct. Jerome Willing wanted to make it appear hammering in the idea with all the ingenious variations of his advertising copy, that homemaking had its beginning and end in good furniture, fine table linen, expensive rugs. God, how about keeping alive some intellectual or spiritual passion in the home? How about the children? Did anybody suggest to women that they give to understanding their children a tenth part of the time and real intelligence and real purposefulness they put into getting the right clothes for them? A tenth? A hundredth? The living, miraculous, infinitely fragile fabric of the little human souls they lived with. Did they treat that with the care and deft-handed patience they gave to their fillet-ornamented table linen? Uh, I wonder, Amanda, if you would introduce yourself to our listeners by explaining what you do in your career when you're not recording for LibriVox. Sure. Um, Like you said, my name is Amanda Mel, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, Um, I am primarily an actor. I'm also a theater producer. Um, Unfortunately, COVID has derailed both of those things. But um, yeah, normally I'm frequently acting in stage productions. And I started my small independent theater company, uh, Public Citizen Theater, with a good friend of mine back in 2016. And so we've done two full productions through that company, plus uh, some stage readings. The person I started the company with, um, Aaron, he and I were in a show together back in 2015, and we both kind of just really hit it off and became good friends, and we had an idea for a show we wanted to do, and rather than kind of waiting around for someone to do it, we were like, why don't we just do our own thing and do our own production? And while we were in the process of planning that, we kind of decided to just make it official and be a company. That way we could have our branding um, if we wanted to do future productions and people would know it was still us and the same team. So um, yeah, that was kind of the impetus for that. And we were really lucky that our first production was pretty successful. 
Um, and yeah, we did a pretty good job <laughs> right out the gate, if I do say so myself. <laughs> now, was that the show called The Maids? Yes, by Jean Genet. Okay, I did see a lot of uh, information about that around 2016 or thereabouts. Yeah, the translation we chose was one done by a British playwright named Martin Crimp. Martin Crimp is a really fantastic playwright, and he updated it and made it feel a little more modern. And um, that was kind of what inspired us to do that production, um, just because the way that Crimp did the translation from French really spoke to us, and I felt like it made the production really relevant to mm -hmm. today. And and how did you um, determine that the rights that you could purchase for this were affordable, or how did you pay for that? <laughs> well, it, yeah, it was complicated. We had to find uh, Martin Crimp's agent in London and contact them, and then we had to get permission from the Jean Genet estate in mm -hmm. France. Right. And then we had to do wire transfers of money, and so... Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was complicated, but we were lucky to find a local funder who funds a lot of theater projects, and she loves Jean Genet and saw a production of The Maids in the 60s that she fell in love with. And so when she heard we were doing this updated version, she was really, um, really generous and helped us fund everything. I mean, did that just come together magically? Or, I mean, how did you find that there was someone in your community who was interested in this very production, or or did that set in motion the decision to go with this particular production? I mean, I think it was really serendipitous. Oh, okay. um, yeah, this woman is really well known. I mean, Portland is a city, but it's like a small town of a city, basically. It's not exactly L.A. or New York, so mm -hmm. um, everyone knows everyone, and so we already knew that we would try to approach her for funding. So it was just really lucky that she, we didn't know that she was so a big fan of um, Jean Genet until we met with her. Okay. And then she was just, yeah, over the moon about it. So. Oh, okay. And um, if we can back up just a bit, were you born and raised in Portland? Uh, yeah, I'm a Pacific Northwest native. Okay. So now, now that, that play, I've read a little bit about it. <laughs> It's a very uh, edgy play, right? It's uh, it's, it's interesting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess that explains the large part of its appeal. I've been to Portland many times in the last five years because I happen to have some family out there. Uh, and, you know, everybody wants to keep Portland weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> but to tell me a little bit about it from your st point of view. Yeah, well, the most interesting thing is that it uses role play in a really interesting way. So it's based on a true story of two sisters who were live-in servants in a house, and they ended up brutally murdering their employer and her daughter. Um, and it's kind of an examination of their psychology leading up to that, an examination of them feeling trapped in their circumstance, they have no way out of being, you know, stuck as working as a maid and they're very poor. And um, mm -hmm. their mistress, who's uh, the third character in the play, is so aloof and just doesn't understand. And so when she is gone, they do these elaborate role plays where one of them dresses up as her and then performs these strange rituals 
to the other sister and they sort of get into this psychosexual thing and sort of what that could drive someone to do or to go through. Right. And, and of course, uh, society has gotten even more pressurized for people where, you know, people are at their wits end or at the end of their ropes, even yeah. even more so today than in 2016. So it's, it's sort of a, a very, very timely subject. Okay, so explain to me, um, this was the first production of the public theater, public citizen theater? Yes. Mm -hmm. What happened with that project after 2016? Um, well, like I said, we were really lucky that the production was successful. We came away with some profit from ticket sales, um, largely just thanks to getting in touch with local media that really seized on this new adaptation of Jean Genet. Um, and we ended up getting a lot of interest and a lot of audience. So that was really, really nice. Um, and we kind of went on a little bit of a hiatus for maybe a year or so. Um, we did a stage reading production of um, some female playwrights from the early 20th century, and those texts were public domain. Um, so we didn't have to pay royalties. And that was just a little way for us to kind of stay, yeah. stay out there. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so it kind of took a while for us to build up to doing the next full production, which was in 2019. And that was actually a play written by Martin Crimp, who was the translator for The Maids, um, called Dealing with Claire. And that, ironically, was also based on a real-life crime where a realtor in England um, went to a showing of a property and then disappeared and basically it's assumed she was murdered by the person that she was meeting but they never were able to verify the identity of that person and it happened in the 80s before cell phones and gps tracking and all that stuff mm -hmm. so um yeah uh and that was another really intense sort of psychological buildup mm -hmm. where you see the relationship with the realtor and the guy that eventually murders her um so, yeah, I mean, I would say if there's a theme for our productions, it's that my co-artistic director and I really like these sort of gritty psychological pieces. Um, yeah, so, but it definitely took a while to kind of get to our next full production. And then, unfortunately, since that was summer of 2019, we haven't been able to do anything since then. Yes, yes, I, I can see that. Okay, so so this the the noirish themes of your plays and the psychological underpinnings of the topics. It, it's not a brand; it just hap it just works out that way with your selection of plays. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, part of our sort of mission as a theater company is we wanted to do things that we felt were kind of politically relevant, not just producing. I'll give an example. My uh, Aaron, my co-producer, really dislikes the play Steel Magnolias. Uh -huh. And he uses that as an example of like very typical like theater that yeah. Yeah, is easy for people to go to, which right. personally, I don't have anything against Steel Magnolias, but he is from the South. And so it's just like way overdone for him. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> right. So yeah, that's kind of what we wanted to, sort of push the envelope a little bit more and um yeah i mean who knows what our next what our next play will be but it's a little tricky to find 
things that sort of hit that that perfect note for us in a way. Now, you have a full-time job doing something else, isn't that right? Yeah, I'm a box office manager for a children's theater. It's a part-time, it's a part-time oh, job. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so these people have this grand idea, which sounds incredibly bold and, and daring. And what happened? Did, <laughs> was it successful? <laughs> uh, is it struggling now? And, and of course, I'm not really talking about the pandemic. Obviously, that's, that's a struggle for everybody. But I mean, right. up to 2019, was it was it just a, a rising success story, or were you still struggling with that uh, project? Well, you know, there's a saying that goes around the Portland theater community, and I don't know the source for it, but people like to repeat the claim that Portland has the most theater companies per capita of any metropolitan area in the United States. And again, I don't have a source, but <laughs> in the heyday of maybe like six, seven years ago, I would say, uh, I would probably agree that that was true because everyone and their sister was starting a theater company to do their pet projects. Um, so we aren't really unique in that respect. Um, so, and then unfortunately we've had a lot of theater venues close and space is at a major premium with the huge population boom that we got in Portland over the last 10 years. Commercial development has really pushed out arts venues and that results in so many groups trying to find space and fighting over the same 20 theater spaces at any given time that those spaces have their own resident companies that are using it for most of the year. So yeah, it's definitely really challenging. It's not something that you can really just take off with mm -hmm. if you mm -hmm. don't already have, you know, your own money or your, you know, a huge team behind you that's already really well established. Right. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the roadblock that we have right now. And you can keep your co cohort of actors, um, working with you or, or there are always are others to take the places of people who want to do something else with their lives. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's definitely no shortage of actors in Portland. That's okay. For sure. All right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, if you could write your own ticket, as far as your future is concerned, what kind of acting would you like to do? Well, Really anything, honestly. I definitely have more experience with stage acting. I really enjoy acting for a live audience. Um, I have done some film projects, and that is also fun for me. I enjoy being on a film set in that different way that you have to um, interact with the technology component that just isn't there on a stage. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival is one of the largest um, regional repertory theater companies in the United States, and that's in Southern Oregon in Ashland. And I've visited there and gone to shows there so many times. I would really love to perform there someday. I mean, almost every Oregon actor like talks about going to OSF. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some disadvantages to being, you know, in Southern Oregon where there's really nothing else there except for that theater. Um, but that would be a cool experience to have. Um, or just doing a tour 
Uh, I've never really done a tour show, and I think that would be a lot of fun, mm-hmm. traveling to different areas, different theaters. Um, I'm sure it gets tiring after you do it, but, you know, just to do it one time might be might be fun. I don't know. Right. I'm just so starved for anything right now that I'm like, oh, right. anything sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you don't have, like, a single dream that must be fulfilled for you to... Uh, feel like your life is complete professionally speaking uh you're you're willing to uh um you know see what comes along and see if it can it can become your dream i guess yeah i mean i think for the 99 percent of actors that you know aren't a-list celebrities you sort of have to learn to let go of that kind of ultimate victory because to me it's about finding things I can feel passionate about. And when I did The Maids, I really, really enjoyed being in that show because I felt very artistically fulfilled mm-hmm. doing that production. And yes, it didn't it's not, it didn't exactly make me famous or whatever, but um, that to me is what I live for, is that feeling of artistic satisfaction. Right, right. Now, I happened to uh, meet you, so to speak, with LibriVox, and I wonder why you decided to record for LibriVox. Well, I always kind of wanted to get into voiceover, but I really didn't have time. And one, it was a couple months into quarantine, and I was really bored, and I started thinking about how can I do this, and, you know, I came across some of the professional voiceover forums and websites. And I know I didn't have a lot of experience directly with it. So I was wondering how I could practice. And I saw in one of those forums, someone mentioned LibriVox. So I checked it out and I was like, oh, this is cool. Like I can do it with no prerequisites and, you know, everything's free and just sign up and do do your best. (laughs) And so that's what really drew me, uh, drew me to it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, you can write your own ticket pretty much, and uh, it, people don't realize how easy it is, technically speaking, to make a recording, and it can stretch your abilities as well if you if you do that over and over again. Now, do you think there are are parallels between acting and audio narration? Yeah, I think any. Any performance or speaking experience that you have, I think, really helps with audio narration. Um, Definitely, if you have acting training, there's a lot you can draw on for interpretation and presentation, giving characters different voices, things like that. Um, I will say one thing I noticed that's different about audio narration is that there's a certain sort of cadence of speaking that you don't really have an acting. Um, when I listened to audiobooks that I liked, I realized the narrator was sort of speaking in a way that let me kind of break up the phrases and understand the thoughts and the ideas. And you sort of, if you can't see the text, you have to rely on the reader to provide that sort of punctuation and separation of the phrases. And that to me is probably one of the more challenging things because as an actor I don't ever worry about that you know if I'm just portraying a character I'm speaking the way that the character would speak and I'm not worried about the text 
mm-hmm, perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that's one of the main differences I found. They're very different mediums. Uh, and yet, mm-hmm. and yet on audiobooks that you purchase, uh, there are so many actors who do the narrations. They just mm-hmm. don't. Somebody once said, I used to think anyway, that, that in order to do an audio narration, you had to have a voice like James Earl Jones or something like that. <laughs> uh, and uh, yet somebody who produces audio recordings, I saw on YouTube saying that how often have you met somebody and then walked away and said, boy, that person has a terrible voice. <laughs> In other words, you never really do that. So just about anybody, if they work hard enough, can consider themselves to have a voice suitable for audio narration. So do you do you imagine continuing to record for LibriVox, or do you think that, you know, you've gotten as much as you, you can out of the, out of the, the platform? I hope to. I'm still working on my solo book. Um, I got derailed by a couple things and just haven't been able to give as much time to it as I thought I would. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely would really like to keep reading. Um, I just need to find a good balance of mm-hmm. being able to devote the time that right. it requires. Now, well, how do you decide which which books or texts to read? Like, the Homemaker by Dorothy Canfield Fisher. How did you light on that one? Sure. Um, so I found that one on a list of books that had newly entered the public domain, um, because as you said, LibriVox only does public domain texts. And I thought the premise was really interesting. Um, it's about a woman in the early 1920s who becomes the breadwinner of her household because her husband ends up bedridden after an accident. Um, and Dorothy Canfield Fisher is well known for being a feminist and progressive writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought it was a good choice because I really wanted to do a book on my own. And I thought it was one that I could kind of really invest myself in the message of the book. And what is the project that you are going to return to at some point at some point and try to complete? Yeah, that's the homemaker. Oh, so that I'm is about the homemaker. Done. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, because I know you you recorded a, a chapter or two of uh, it was it the Turkish letters or, or something along that line. Oh yeah, those ones were really fun because it was the sort of diary of a woman who traveled to um, various countries back in the I want to say late 1700s. Um, and it was really fascinating to hear her descriptions of her travels and and especially from a woman's point of view talking about like she was able to go into these women, female Turkish baths, which like men couldn't go into. And at that time, men were the primary, you know, recorders of travel and mm. uh, history and things. And so she gave a unique perspective because she's able to go into these female spaces that uh, weren't previously sort of documented for um, for the Western audiences. Now, where I found out about you was in your recording of a chapter from A History of Astronomy, of all things, by Walter Bryant, because I happen to record a chapter myself. I'm very interested in astronomy, but I'm not an historian of astronomy, and certainly I'm not a scientist. And that was a very difficult book to read. 
Um, what what attracted you to that project? <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be really honest, it was kind of the first thing I saw that was okay. available on there. So, and I like astronomy. I have an interest in space and sci-fi and everything. So I was like, this could be cool. Mm-hmm. It definitely turned out to be a lot drier than I <laughs> anticipated. I think Walter Bryant was writing for a scientific audience, yes. not necessarily the average person. Um, I mean, even then, I still feel like he could have livened it up a bit. <laughs> um. Right. I, I did learn some things from my reading. I will have to say that. Why do you think people who are new to audiobooks should consider this medium for their enjoyment of books, if you think so. Yeah, um, you know, I haven't always been the biggest audiobook listener myself. I'm a pretty avid reader, so I usually just read things. But um, when I do listen, I find it to be very relaxing. I think there's something about being read to that kind of takes us back to childhood in a way, kind of reminds us of when a teacher or a family member read a book to us and it's just really nice to kind of let your imagination wander and picture the things that you're hearing without, you know, having to really work at reading the book and it's relaxing in that way. It definitely also helps pass the time if you're doing something like cleaning the house or working out or on a long car drive. Um, so yeah, those are the things that I think are advantageous to audiobooks. And obviously anyone, you know, who has a visual impairment or just finds it easier to listen rather than read, that's a huge plus for that. I think it's great that LibriVox is preserving these texts in an audio format. Um, sometimes, like in the example of a history of astronomy, I wondered what the use for it was because a little bit of it is outdated information, not mm-hmm. accurate today. But, you know, a lot of times people do need to access old texts for whatever reason. And so making sure that that's accessible to everyone, no matter what, I think is a really good goal. So, um, yeah. I heartily agree. And um, I must say, Amanda, I've learned a great deal from our conversation about the craft of acting and how thousands of people who have not yet made it to film fame can still make a career in acting and contribute so much to society and to fulfilling their own personal dreams. So thank you very much for coming on to the podcast and sharing your experience with all our listeners. Well, thank you. It was really fun talking to you. Before we go, take a listen to another sample of the work of Amanda Mel on LibriVox. This is a selection from the Turkish Embassy Letters by Lady Mary Worley Montague, published in the 18th century. I think you'll agree that Miss Mel has a terrific voice for audio narration, and you will hear more about her in the future. After my first surprise was over, I endeavored, by nicely examining her face, to find out some imperfection, without any fruit of my search but my being clearly convinced of the error of that vulgar notion that a face exactly proportioned and perfectly beautiful would not be agreeable, nature having done for her with more success what Apelles is said to have essayed by a collection of the most exact features to form a perfect face. 
Add to all this a behavior so full of grace and sweetness, such easy motions with an air so majestic yet free from stiffness or affectation, that I am persuaded, could she be suddenly transported upon the most polite throne of Europe, nobody would think her other than born and bred to be a queen, though educated in a country we call barbarous. To say all in a word, our most celebrated English beauties would vanish near her. When I took my leave, two maids brought in a fine silver basket of embroidered handkerchiefs. She begged I would wear the richest for her sake, and gave the others to my woman and her interpretess. I retired through the same ceremonies as before, and could not help thinking I had been some time in Mohammed's paradise, so much was I charmed with what I had seen. I know not how the relation of it appears to you. I wish it may give you part of my pleasure, if I would have my dear sister share in all my diversions. <laughs>